Well, good morning, Grace Church of the Valley. It is a joy to see you on this Sunday morning. Of all the uh, commotion and the, the abundance of energy of this past week in your homes, I'm sure this is a wonderful treat to sit and to hear the Word of God. And it's a joy, it's an honor of mine to serve you in this manner and share the Word of God with you. And, and I, I want to thank you for this opportunity. Thank you uh, for your time today. And, and I pray and I trust that it will be beneficial for you. I'd like to begin our time with prayer first, and, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today is a day of worship and rejoicing that we know the King. And I pray today that our time together in Scripture would be beneficial, that we would learn of this King. May our hearts and our minds see the King. We're thankful, Lord, that um, outside these walls, as there's confusion and there is concern in the world, yet here in the warmth of the sanctuary in your house, O Lord, we can learn of your wonderful ways. We can learn of the mighty counselor. We can learn of Jesus as king, and we can be steady and stable. We love you, Lord Jesus. We are thankful, and we praise you and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's idea of a king Maybe tough for American thinking. But the idea, the idea I trust is not that far below the surface. It's evident when you see how many times we're ready and willing to give someone the nickname the king. Even though as a nation we've thrown off the king a long time ago, I find it interesting how willing and ready and desiring we are to place that label on people. It seems like anyone can have kingship bestowed on them, or anyone can be king for any reason. We have had, or have had the following, we've had the king of pop, the king of rock and roll, the king of NASCAR, the king of Hollywood, and the list goes on and on. And now it seems like as a nation... As a people, we've gotten lazy. No longer do we award them king status to the industry or the, the environment that we're in, they're in. Now we just call them the king. It makes me wonder, and as I studied the scripture, and I want you to go ahead now and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It's a portion of scripture, scripture that I think gets overlooked quite often. We go through the Christmas season, we come right up to verse 12 in Matthew chapter 2, and we have the, the Magi decide to go a different direction home. But what you see in the remainder of chapter 2 in Matthew is a continued effort by the gospel writer Matthew himself to lay the case for Christ as king. And you have to wonder, when, when we today look for a king, what are we looking for? This question shouldn't be far from our minds as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not hard to go to the eventual end of what we would desire in a king. Just think in the top of your mind, just take a mental exercise right now and say, what is it that I would look for in a king? I can name a few attributes that would come immediately to my mind. I would think of a king as someone that is fair, that is just, that is equitable, I would even place morality on that list. I want you to think, when you have an idea of what is a king, what comes to your mind? 
In my preparation for this sermon, I spent quite a bit of time researching and defining the term king. And something interesting came about. Something interesting that Matthew unfolded, but also I found in in biblical dictionaries and biblical encyclopedias that were always finding three attributes that rose to the surface. A true king, in the sense of the word, should have three defined and clear attributes. Three defined and clear attributes. His kingship is to be marked by his lineage. What do I mean by that? A king should have pedigree, nobility. He should be from good stock. Secondly, a king should be marked by his ability. His ability. We wouldn't want a king that can't perform the task or the role of the job. His ability should be seen as fairness and justness. He should be a solution finder. No movement should overcome him, and he himself should fix society's ills. He should solve big issues affecting his people in his domain. For ultimately, he is the king. He is responsible. And that leads us to our third point. What defines a king? What is in your mind when you think of a king? If the first two are true, then the third naturally follows. It would be his absolute power. Absolute power. Unopposed. No threat to his position. Because he deals so fairly and justly and equitable, all opposition would find no case to usurp his authority. It's pretty interesting when you think that's Kind of a common idea of what the world would even seek in a king. And I attest to you that the world is looking for a king. And as time moves on, it seems so ready that humanity is ready and determined to place their trust not in a collective government, but in a singular person, if you will. I would suggest that possibly we are designed to serve a king. This is the natural flow. This is how we were created. But what about you? I attest that 2020 has been difficult. The greatest fear would be that in the course of being tossed about and being upended in life, one would take their eye off the king. What is your king? It doesn't necessarily have to play with the word king, but Where are we finding ourselves placing our trust and looking for these attributes in kingship? Maybe it is a president. Maybe it's a movement. Maybe we're looking for these king-like attributes and things on this earth. That would be fearful. Most of the times we look through and whenever we place our trust on anything that holds these things of kingship, we find that they never match all three. The king might be pedigreed, but he might have no ability. Or he has the ability, but no pedigree. But here in Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read the text. Matthew shows these three attributes clearly, and he uses it in the most interesting and profound way. He uses it through the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm excited to share that with you today. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, and let's pick up Matthew's narrative as he winds these two themes together in verses 13 through 23. 
Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And be, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. The idea of kingship was never far from the Jewish mind. They understood that there was going to be a singular appointed Messiah. And for reference's point from this point on, we always understand that the Messiah or the anointed one is the king. They're one and the same. The Jews have that person in their mind and this anointed one is going to bring in a kingdom like no other. A very tangible, real, literal, earthly kingdom with a very tangible, real, literal, and earthly king on his throne. And the Jewish Christians at the time of reading this would understand this. And this is to whom Matthew writes, but there is one problem. They have in their mind the Jesus Christ of history. When this gospel was written, it was literally only 20, approximately 20 years later after Jesus died on the cross. You think in your mind, can you think back 20 years? What was 20 years ago? Well, starting next year, 20 years ago was the day the towers fell. And you can think of what happened, what was going on in that time and place. They too understood the Jesus of history. The question that Matthew is going to answer and showing forth these prophecies and showing forth what the prophets are saying is he's going to answer this question, and this is the one they would have Is this Jesus Christ, the historical one? Is he the king? Is he the king? This is Matthew's role to gain the unconverted and to strengthen the converted. It's almost like a two-edged sword. This scripture is beneficial for both those of us who believe and those that sit outside and have yet to recognize the king. I see no problem in that being our purpose today. We share that same question today. Who is your king? Is the Jesus proclaimed in Scripture sufficient enough to be your king? 
To see Christ in these passages is to be strengthened and comforted. And to see Christ in these passages and to hear the testimony of God concerning his son in the Old Testament specifically is sufficient for salvation. A short way to say it is scriptures are sufficient for both the growth and maturity of a Christian and for the coming to salvation. Jesus is the king because he has the lineage and the love from the Father. Jesus is the king because he is able to meet our needs. And Jesus is the king because he has absolute power over all things. But what makes this section, this version of text, or this portion of text so wonderful, is that his use of the Old Testament. Matthew's greatest tool is the Old Testament prophets concerning his argument that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's already used genealogy in verses 1 through 16 as he records the genealogy of Jesus. He actually also shows in chapter 2 that there are two Gentile factions that recognize the kingship in a roundabout way. First, the Magi as Gentiles recognize and anoint the king. That's the good side. The bad side is Herod, even in his own gross and perverse way, recognizes the kingship, although he's determined to destroy that king. But that's not enough. Matthew continues on in the testimony, the miraculous arrival of the king, by giving us Old Testament arguments. Recently, I took a class, and it propelled me into this text. And once I found myself in this text, it became so difficult to get out. There was so much there, and what would seem just 10 verses of, of just a few smattering of, of Old Testament scriptures, but what I found is the deep beauty that Matthew's attempting to do here. It is a difficult passage, and, and as I sorted through it, I wanted to say, well, there's really two things that you need to remember. Number one is Matthew's audience. When we go through these verses, 13 through 23, remember Matthew's audience. This will help greatly. This is a Jewish audience audience. Matthew is the first gospel written, and he's writing to Jewish believers. It's didactic in nature. Another way to say it's teaching. He is teaching them some very important information. What, what evidence do you have that it is a Jewish audience? Well, you understand in the first part, Matthew traces the genealogy only back to Abraham. Luke took it all the way back to Adam. You also see all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, he cites Jewish customs without ever explaining them. Another, and there's a list, a whole list, but another one that I found so important is he has a, a sensitivity to Jewish sensibility. And instead of saying kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven 32 times. You also understand that he would know that the, they have an expectation of Messiah. And it goes all the way back, all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman, although he would bruise his heel. Second Samuel also says, and this is Nathan speaking of David's reign till the end of the time, so they would know this. It says in 2 Samuel 7.16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In Psalm 24, 7-10 I find it a beautiful one, surely one that they sang, a psalm of David. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Expectancy. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
who is the king of glory? These questions still translate today. Who is your king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So Matthew uses Old Testament prophecy to its full extent. And the vision that I have, the understanding that I have, is Matthew is almost like a tradesman. He has a tool belt on, and he has all kinds of different grammatical tools to win those over to Christ, to show them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he will hold no hold bars to get what he wants. He uses every tool necessary. He'll use illustrations. He'll use predictive prophecy. He'll use whatever it takes, types. He'll use all kinds of analogies. He'll use whatever it takes, even the narrative. But what's important is he's going to use them all because he sees that there's an importance to win them to Christ. Not only win them to Christ, but raise those up that need to know and be strengthened that Christ is indeed the King. So let's indeed, let's begin, let's jump in and let's go through this narrative. First of all, Jesus has the lineage in verses 13 through 15. Jesus has the lineage. And we see that through his narrative in the flight into Egypt. So look with me in verse 13 through 15. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Who are the they in the first part of verse 13? These are the Magi up in verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod the Magi. For the the Magi left for their own country by another way. It's an interesting. What's the main point here is that the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. So Matthew begins to weave in a beautiful counterpoint that God is ultimately working. He's putting his signature on all things to work this young family away from danger. This is the king, and the king must be protected. Notice that also, he says here, get up, and he lists the child first. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. The main point here is to understand that the whole purpose of this story in verses 13 through 23, the main subject is the child. It's bringing the king and getting him ready so later on in Matthew, he will be presented to the Jewish nation. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain. You see three commands there, and this is ultimately God working in Joseph's life by giving him simple commands, take, flee, and remain. All of this language pushes to an urgency. Why? Because you see in verse 14, as you continue on, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and left while it was still night. This was an immediate, this was urgent. Why? If you look back up to verse 13, for Herod is going to search and destroy. The idea is he doesn't know where this king is yet, but he's obviously threatened, and he's going to do whatever it takes to search and to destroy whatever would rise against him. We see Joseph's obedience in verse 14, and then we begin the arguments of the Old Testament where the New Testament uses the Old Testament. And it's our parallel in verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You have to understand that he is quoting Hosea 11.1. In the NASB, it doesn't even even put that notation, but I notice it's in the other versions. This comes from Hosea 11.1. And for, and for expediency purposes, I won't go back to each one, but I'll je- 
give a brief overview, the theme of Hosea is unconditional love and compassion. And if you've studied Hosea, it's a most compelling story. It's a very emotional story. It's the idea of Hosea the prophet, and he's prophesying to the kings, and and he's prophesying to the king, and he's saying, whoa, don't do these things. Judgment is at hand. And so God uses his life as a very interesting object lesson. He has a Mary Gomer, and his marriage to this adulterous prostitute becomes the object lesson that even though his wife, Gomer, continues to leave him and goes away, he goes back and he pursues her and he finds her. His marriage then, as it goes through, when they're brought back, in the latter part of Hosea is when Matthew brings this verse to bear. He says, out of Egypt... I have called my son. The idea is this is Matthew's use of typology. It's it's really a simple idea. It's a comparison, a correspondence between the two. Matthew has one goal, and he wants to show the Jewish reader at that time that this has bearing and a correspondence to what you have experienced as well as a Jew. What we see there is that both are in exile, both Jesus and Jacob the reference to Israel. We also see that both are objects of God's love. We also see that both are delivered and then both come out of Egypt. This idea, then when he gets through Hosea, he's saying, look, the object lesson is I called her back. I called her back. And when he says this, he's talking to Hosea and he said, just like Jacob, Israel, I called him back. I am his father and he is my son. Matthew uses this so that they would understand that this has been filled full. That's another way to look at it. When it says fulfilled, we understand that there's a semantic range to that name. But what it means is it is fulfilled or, flip the word around, filled fuller. The meaning is filled fuller. We, ha- we can see and understand what he was calling for. So you understand the king has lineage now. Not just in his genealogy, but he actually has the installment of God's love upon him. You can be a son or a child, but your father can reject you. Your mother can leave. But that's not what Matthew's saying. Matthew's saying, out of Egypt I called my son. He is my son. He is the anointed one. The king has lineage, and he is seen as the son of God. This is just a capstone to the anointed one's love from the father. Matthew uses this idea of sonship then through the rest of all the scripture. We see him use the term son of man 31 times, the term son of God nine times, and the term son of David eight times. This king has lineage in all the senses. In one sense, he calls out Israel from Egypt way back during the captivities, but also you have to understand he literally did then call Christ out as he is from that lineage. Next, you see that Jesus is able Our second point is Jesus is able, and you see that in the narrative in verses 16 through 18, and that's the Herod's slaughtering of the children. To be honest with you, this is the verse that drew me to this scripture. Whenever I read this passage, I wondered, why is this in here? We go through this Christmas story, we see that here's this beautiful babe born, and, and the king has arrived, and it's almost from the very beginning he is pursued relentlessly. Then I understood. This is what Matthew's talking about. 
And what you also see here is Herod, the false king, and Jesus, the true king. Jesus is able, seen in this section of the slaughter of children. But you have to understand, who's Herod? Herod was a very, very despicable man. As he rode the political waves to kingship, he did whatever it took to gain power. Cruel, vindictive, murderous. He did all of those things to claw his way to the top and to have his own title, King of the Jews. But yet, he's afraid. Of all that work, so easily it was going to be taken away because he knew, he knew himself that there was an aforementioned Messiah. One who was owed the king of Jews. If you look over to chapter 2 at the verse part, when the Magi show up in verse 2, they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? If you jump down to verse 4, look at, look at this little council that, that Herod puts together, and he obviously, in his own testimony, recognizes that the Messiah is going to be the king. Gathering together, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. At this point in Herod's life, he's quite a bit older. His oldest son, Antipor, I think is his name, he's, he's now beginning to rival his own father for the kingship. He's clawed, he's, fight, he's fought, and he's determined to hold the title king of the Jews. But then in verse 16, we see what happens when an earthly king, and he's not even Jewish, becomes threatened. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Such is one who loses control. Such is one that has turned his heart and his mind over to Satan and he has pursued at all costs power. He wasn't even a good king. All of his, his buildings put the, put the whole nation into taxation and servitude and slavery. But when he became enraged, he knew no boundary. He had no, nothing to stop him, nothing to prohibit him. And here you see one of the most sad examples in all Scripture of the world's pursuit to pull the king out. Verse 16, And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity for two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. It was funny, he, he thought he was going to trick them, and he was going to tell, ask them where, was, where, where uh, Christ was, and he was going to go worship. And now he finds himself being tricked, and the only way and the only recourse is to destroy innocent children. Then, verse 17, Matthew brings back in the other part of this, and he shows the Old Testament prophet another fulfillment Something else being corresponded, something else being put together so that the Jews reading this would understand there is God's stamp and signature on all of these things. The evidence is too much. This has to be the king. Verse 17, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. What's going on here? Well, if you understand the, the book of Jeremiah, you could understand it as the testimony of tears. There's nothing in the book of, Je book of Jeremiah except judgment, 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 judgment. All except three, verse, three chapters. Chapter 30 through chapter 33. 
And in the midst of all that judgment and all those tears, Jeremiah interludes with hope. With hope. What you see here is a voice heard in Ramah is the illustration of Rachel. This would, be, this would be the mother of both the north and the south kingdom. Ramah, a town about five to six miles north of Jerusalem, is where they would bring all of those that are going into captivity. They would collect them at that point and they would send them away to Babylon. The imagery is, is just so stark. These people wrenched from their homes, their, their, their land has been taken, and they're collected in this small, this small village. They're separating families. There's weeping, there's crying, and the illustration is there's Rachel, who would have long passed by this time. She sits and she looks at the children of Israel. The bygone conclusion of being disobedient to the ways of Yahweh, and here judgment has been passed. Weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because she watched both the north go to Assyria and Judah now, she's evident in Jeremiah, that they're being taken to Babylon. What's amazing is Matthew uses it here. And it shows the correspondence and the relationship between Jesus and Israel. What's being shared? Both speak of God's people suffering under a cruel ruler. The judgment of the nation of Israel, both north and south, shows that the world is hostile both to the nation of Israel but also to the Messiah, and immense suffering will be evident. Yet there is hope among the tears. Let's read those together. Turn to Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah 31. He quotes Jeremiah 31. And he had quoted verse 15. If you look at me, Jeremiah 31, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But that's not the end. And Matthew weaves this in to show that even though there's that relationship, that this king is able, that this king is able to solve this. Look, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, restrain, Rachel, your voice from weeping, And your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they will return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children, your children will return to their own own territory. You just go over to verses 31 of the same chapter. And there, many of you will recognize instantly what he is showing here, the prophet is showing Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hope amidst all that devastation. Hope where there were once tears. This Messiah, this King Matthew is saying, brings hope. And even though there is cruelty, there's issues now. There's problems and the effects of sin. Rachel will weep no more. Go over and look at chapter 33 of Jeremiah 
and look at verse 14. Will this king be able to change the current social problems? Will we always suffer the ills of cruel leadership? Is that fear for, forefront in our minds? Did, did the way things go, is that makes us unsteady? What king do we serve? This king. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you serve this king. In Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Both of them there. And in those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice, justice, and righteousness on the earth. This king has the ability to turn mourning into joy, tears into laughter. And again, Matthew uses this as a wonderful pictogram, a wonderful way to put God's stamp on the sovereign work of bringing the king you think this small family, a mother and a father and this small child being at the centerpiece of the fight for good, fight for God and fight for evil. Finally, what else should a king exhibit? What else should a king exhibit? Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. A king should have absolute power. Absolute power. And we see that in the settling of Nazareth. Now this one, you say, how, how is this possible? Well, follow along with me. Verses 19 through 22. The first thing we see is the angelic call to return. Just as the way the angel of the Lord came and said, get up and go into Egypt so that he could be called back and fulfilling the scripture the angel now comes to Egypt and says, I need you to go 165 miles now the other direction back to Galilee. But he doesn't go there first. They're, they're way late a little bit. In verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child. See, the child referenced first, and, and the similarity in the verses are amazing. They're bookends to this little, this little use of the, the prophecies. Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In verse 21, just like verse 14, Joseph shows obedience. He got up and he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But all the prophecies are not quite fulfilled. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And here's the final use of the Old Testament prophecy to anoint and to show that this is, in fact, the promised Messiah. Verse 23. And he came, and he lived in a city called Nazareth. What's interesting, the first two prophecies are prophecies of typology. These are just tools that Matthew is using of this language to tell us the relationship of Israel and Jesus, so that those that are Jewish at this time would be comforted and understand that the historical Jesus that just died on the cross is in fact the king. But here he uses something differently. He uses a text that isn't even quoted anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you find the words, he shall be called a Nazarene. So what's going on here? What's interesting, you need to see that when it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural. He's simply showing that there are 
many recorded, although we do not have testimony that the king, the future Messiah, the king himself will come from Nazareth. What does it do, have to do with his absolute power? Well, it's interesting. The Messiah, if you go to Isaiah chapter 42, and I think this is one of the best ones, the Messiah was always to be rejected. He was never to be known for his absolute power. He was not a king that was going to ride in on a great white horse and save them in power and just a great glorious display. How did he save his people? He came riding on a donkey. Isaiah chapter 42. Look at verse 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold. This is Isaiah who is always pronouncing this suffering servant. Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, says the Lord. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. He's not like King Herod. He's not like the kings of the earth. His absolute power is remarkable. Which king would you rather serve? One that fights and claws and murders his way to the top? Or one that by simply being born takes the world? He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This Messiah has absolute power. But it was read in the prophets, and all these prophets together concluded that this Messiah would come from a humble, lowly village in Bethlehem. We had predictive prophecy for that. And he would go all the way up to a despised city of Nazareth, unheralded. Even John, later on, Nathaniel says, what good comes from Nazareth? He comes from the despised city. He will rise again, and he will establish a kingdom unopposed and of absolute authority. Are you sure? Is the Jewish in this, the person reading this, the one that is receiving the teaching from Matthew, say, but are you sure? Yes. All of their scriptures to this point were sufficient enough to show them the Messiah. That is why Matthew's gospel is in the front. That is why he is the first to teach and to show these things are sufficient and true. If you actually go back to Matthew, what is, Matthew, what is Jesus' own words on his authority? Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 18. He knew he was the Messiah. There was no question there. And he knew that he has absolute reign and power. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he proceeds to send the commission. Matthew uses these Old Testament prophets for a reason. Their words, either in direct prophecy or typology, are sufficient for faith. Scripture is sufficient. Nothing else. The Old Testament scriptures, from front to end, have always pointed to Christ. And Matthew's goal is to show that it continues. And as he writes the first of the New Testament canon, he's showing them it's continuing. 
We need to see that. And another New Testament writer such as Peter even understood that. If you look at Acts, and you don't have to turn there, Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 26, specifically verses 17 through 18, it says this. This is Peter writing when he gives his, his first sermon. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer and he has thus fulfilled You go on and early church fathers listen to some of these statements and I I found these so encouraging. Origen, one of the strongest evidences in the confirmation of the claims of Jesus is that his coming was predicted by the Jewish prophets. Lactantius, Christ, he wrote this, Christ was not believed by us to be God because he did wonderful things, but because that all things that had been announced to us by prediction of the prophets was fulfilled in the Messiah's life. The Old Testament is sufficient in showing us these three attributes. And the final is that he has the divine and absolute authority. But this has always been the question. How does this reference us today? Would you share that question? Is Christ the king? Is Christ the king, the anointed one in your life? Have we become swayed by other things that would promise saviorship, kingship, loyalty, allegiance? These things pale in comparison to what Scripture certifies as the King, Jesus Christ. This is not only a question for the Jews in Matthew's time, but for us today. The question should be now, what do I do now with the understanding that that Jesus Christ historically, in fact, is the anointed one, the king? Maybe you're sitting there and you agree with Matthew's argument to this point. Maybe you say, yeah, I accept his lineage. I see his pedigree. I see the fact that God has anointed him and and called him out just like he called Israel. And I see God's hand written all over that this Jesus is, in fact, a real human. Really God sent. Maybe you read the rest of Matthew, and it's funny, he starts with Old Testament, but 60 times he references the Old Testament through his whole book, his whole letter. And you say, look, I I accept the significant works, the miraculous works of Jesus. I accept those. Ah, but it's the last part, isn't it? It's the last part for both of us as Christians And those of us have yet to submit. It's the last part that's the hard part, isn't it? Do you accept his absolute power? Do you yield to his power? That's the difficult one. One writer wrote that that is the last obstacle of faith. What could bring someone to the power? That's been my... My understanding is my journey through seminary, my journey moving out here, I found myself asking that question, what power do I have? Sometimes I think it's only turning on my truck and turning up the thermostat, and even then, I lose control of those. But what power? It's the power of the gospel. It is the power that Matthew writes, telling you that this one, the anointed Jesus Christ, has the power. If you're sitting there now and you say, no, I, I don't accept that, that he has absolute power. Listen, you're fighting a losing battle. He has that power. That's not the question. And the reality it is, 
You're at war with God the Father, and the battleground is your heart. But today, just like Matthew has shown, this Christ, this Christ, he has the lineage. He is the anointed one, Jesus Christ the King. He has the ability to turn mourning to joy, to take sin and break you from the bonds of sin. And he has the absolute power to take what is once a rocky heart, cold and broken and hesitant and defiant, saying that I have the power, he can take that away. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to yield, to repent and to turn your heart and acknowledge and accept Jesus Christ as truly the King.